Hi, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. So much for us to talk about. Uh, Today is Resurrection Sunday. I'm recording this on Resurrection Sunday, and uh, I actually did a sermon this morning. Facebook got me this app um, where I can live stream, and then people can like do running comments and I can interact with the comments. And I, I'm telling you, um, I feel like this thing was made for me. I love it. So I did a sermon, a Resurrection Sunday morning sermon, but it's on my Facebook page, Rob Bell. So you can watch it whenever you want in case um, you're up for a little resurrection talk. So that's available on my Facebook page. Uh, the 29th, Tuesday night, Uh, Pete Holmes and I will be doing another one of our two-man shows at Largo here in Los Angeles. You can get tickets at largo-la.com, and we have so much fun doing this. Actually, Pete and uh, his girlfriend, the lovely one and only Valerie, were here for lunch, for Resurrection Sunday lunch, and Pete and I talked about what we're going to do, and oh my word, so much fun. I can't wait to see what happens, and I'm going to be there doing it. Um... So we got that going on, and then tour, How to Be Here. My new book came out a couple weeks ago, and so many of you, the feedback, honestly, uh, the feedback to this book is, I've never had feedback like this. It's really, really moving to me. Um, it's, it's hard to even put language on it. This Friday night, uh, April 2nd, I'll be in Miami. Um, Well, April 2nd is actually Saturday. I'll be at the Fillmore doing the How to Be Here experience. It's an all-day Saturday experience where I take people through the ideas in the book. We've done three of them so far. Um, Oh, it's just extraordinary. In Phoenix, there was a woman whose young son had recently been violently murdered. And she came and uh, with her daughter, who's obviously her brother, has has died. Um, And it's funny when you write a book and you're – you try to picture who might engage with the content, but then you're in Phoenix interacting with this lovely woman and then watching her interact with the ideas based on what she's been through. And then another woman at the event talked about how her mother had died nine days earlier. And then, uh, I mean, it's just like some of the people I've gotten to meet and the things you all are going through. And uh, it's just been... Oh, it's just been incredible. So inspiring for me to be a part of these events. So uh, this Saturday, but then Friday night, I will be signing at the Barnes & Noble in Miami on Kendall Drive. Then the following week, I'll be in Durham, North Carolina. I'll be at Flyleaf Books on Friday night at 6. And then Saturday will be the How to Be Here experience at the Rick House. I want to say Brick House, but apparently it's the Rick House in Durham. You can get all your tickets and info at Rob Bell. Then the following week, I'll be in Austin, Texas. And some of these events are selling out. I don't know if Austin's sold out yet. I think there's still a couple tickets for each of those. Um, But would love to see you then uh, that Friday night in Austin, which is the 15th. I'll be at Half Price Books um, on Lamar Boulevard in Austin, Texas. So that's all uh, stuff coming up. And then um, I'll be signing at uh, Last Bookstore in downtown L.A. on April 22nd. So those are all things coming up next couple of weeks. Um, would love to see you at all those. And actually, those of you who listen, do, going out to these different cities and seeing you and meeting you and hearing your stories, um, it's ah, it's just been incredible. I can't say enough about it. And humbling and inspiring. And uh, yeah, whew, 
amazing. So now this episode, one of the things I've noticed is how many of you in your questions and in the interaction on tour, especially around this new book, How to Be Here, how many of you have some sense, like you were handed a way of seeing your world and seeing your life a way that isn't working anymore. And you have the sense like there's got to be some better way forward. Um, But it always means then you have to leave the old way. And maybe it's a job that you're like, why do I do this? Uh, I don't want to be doing this. Or maybe it's a way of viewing your life. Is your life a slog to be endured? Or is it an adventure that you go on? Um, and, And what I've noticed is a number of you have questions like, okay, something's brewing in me. I think there's more but how do you jump? How, how, how do you even go forward? And what, about if you, what if you have kids, a paycheck? What if you have need health insurance? Like all the things that we all need. Um, and, and how do you think about security versus risk and adventure? And uh, so I heard a story. I was actually surfing in Australia in uh, February. And a friend of mine told me a story about a guy. And I instantly was like, oh my word, I have to interview that guy. And I just had a sense like his story might be helpful uh, for you all. And I just wanted to hear the story myself. So his name is Mike Lewis. And uh, so this episode is called Mike Lewis is the 112th best squash player in the world. Because <laughs> as soon as I heard part of the story, I was like, I already know what that Robcast episode is called. And uh, so Mike came over to the house. I tracked him down and a friend hooked us up on email. And then he came to LA to do... Um, the Robcast, and I got to hear the story. Um, but it's at the end of the story that I think you'll notice uh, he's young, but the insight is uh, significant. And I kept thinking towards the end of the interview especially, I bet this would help a number of people um, who listen to the Robcast. So, my brothers and sisters, here you are, Mike Lewis, the 112th best squash player in the world. Hi, friends. Welcome to another Robcast. This one, I'm telling you, this one is just as weird and beautiful as they get. I was surfing recently in Australia with my beloved friend, Chris Madison. Chris, how are you? Big shout out to Chris Madison. And he says, have you heard about Mike Lewis? And I said, no, I haven't. Mike Lewis is with me. Hi, Mike. Hey. (laughs) And... Uh, he tells me this story. Well, he only tells me a little bit of your story. And I'm instantly like, I have to interview that guy. And then I thought, the people who listen to the Robcast are going to love this story. <laughs> so you, where'd you grow up? I was born in New York. Uh, youngest <laughs> is six. Uh, I love it how you're already laughing. It's, it is, yeah. It's a good story. So, so folks, I'm, we lit- he literally just came in the door of my place, and I'm just going to, and I was like, listen, I don't want to have significant conversation because I'm going to ask you all this while we're recording. So we're getting to know each other, and you're listening in because of the snippets of the story. So you went into finance after college. Yes. So I, I graduated from Dartmouth College yep. and got kind of the, the dream job in my mind at the time um, at Bain Capital in their venture capital group. At Bain? Group. Yep. Okay. The Mitt Romney firm. The, the, the Mitt Romney firm, exactly. yes. Exactly. And so started there, you know, kind of every box being checked. I found a way to go to a good school, had a good job. Life was kind of set on paper, or at least and it what should were you, have been. what kind of work did you do at Bain? 
It's a pretty interesting role. And, and again, that's why I said I really, it really was a dream job. They basically said, hey, we have a lot of companies we got to go look at, and we don't have the resources. We have 30 people in our venture group. We're going to give you our name and resources and just check in once in a while. And in the meantime, go, go talk to companies. Go talk to CEOs, entrepreneurs. Bring in interesting ideas for us. And the, and the job is to go cold into a company. You probably do a bunch of research. Figure out what's happening in this company. Does it have a future? What's the upside? What's the leadership like, I assume? Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like dating, right? There's a lot of people that are coming to you, and you're going to a lot of people. It's a matter of kind of finding oh, that it. right match. And they had specific criteria, like what size, how fast they were growing. Were they interested in taking outside investment? You and know. the goal is that Bain would put money into the company or take the company or devour it? No, well... Or chew it up and spit it out? Like, no, what's no, the no. goal? No, the first one, like, put money in and help grow. And so oftentimes, we were talking to entrepreneurs had, who had bootstrapped a business, had never taken outside capital. It was growing really well. And we thought, hey, you know, we can try to help you grow to the next level. So somebody has a business idea. They're opening a dry cleaner for something. Yep. And it's a good idea, but they've done it all by just sheer hard work and perseverance. And the idea is they're at the point where they need some outside money to help them take it farther. Yeah, it's like if you started a surfboard shop down the street yeah. and Rob's surfboards crush it for the first few Terrible years. Terrible name, but go on. Yeah, I don't know. Shredding the Rob. I'll have to right. think of a better one. <laughs> Shredding the Rob doesn't yeah, yeah. sound as good. But um, you crush it for a few years. Sales are great, but you just don't have a lot of opportunity to kind of open a new store or hire more people or yeah. invest in a better website. And so Bain pops along along with you know a lot of other types of venture firms and say, hey, the business looks really great in what you're doing. There's something working. Why don't we give you 15 or 20 million bucks, which some of it might be to grow the business. Some of it might be to just give you a little bit of cash and let you check, uh, check in a little bit on some equity. <laughs> Why don't we just give you 15 to 20 million bucks? Yeah. All of a sudden, Rob's surfboard sounds pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Rob. <laughs> so this is Rob. what you do. So out of college, this is what you do. Yep. So out of college, I can paint the picture very clearly. Like in one square block in Boston, I um, had my apartment with, with all my buddies from school. I went out to all the bars around the corner, went to work in the biggest building in, in town, uh, went up to the third ninth floor, shut my door in my office. Like life was set on paper this was the next 30 years. And what was interesting was that I think in my parents' generation and their parents' generation, certainly that should have been it. Like there shouldn't we be made any it. more question. We made it. Um, and what was interesting was that I had this little voice that said, you know, hold on just a second. You have this just other a minute. thought. <laughs> and there's something within right away, right away. It's not working or right away. It's like, it's, I made it. It's, it's so that's the weird thing was it was working. I think a yeah. lot of people think of leaving their job because it's like, Oh, this is terrible going up, you know, Guns blazing, I'm leaving here, I'm waking up tomorrow, I'm moving to Fiji. But in fact, I think a lot of us actually find parts of our jobs that we really like. And that was certainly the case with me. I love the people. I thought the work was interesting. Um, it, was, it was what I thought yeah. I wanted. And so I think the real kind of decision point came when it was like, but, but when do I go do what I really want to go do, which happened to be a little I bit I assume you're making really good money for your age. More than I'd ever dreamed of in my whole life. And more than people who are probably been then working for a number of years. Who knows? So you're young and you're making more money than you need and it's stimulating or whatever. Yeah. And then what, what is the thing? Okay. What is the restlessness? So I, I think my friend described it well. About like six months in, like the real world sets in. I'm not in college anymore. You kind of have your nine to five. And mm -hmm. all of that I got and I was learning a lot. Like by no means was I saying I was in a tough spot. Like I, as I started out saying it earlier, like this was my dream was like to have all yeah. these things. 
And yet I found something that was interesting to me, which was this kind of circularity to my life. So every day I would wake up, I'd walk two minutes to work, and if I didn't bump into someone on those two minutes into work, I would say hi to the same lady at the front desk, I'd ride the elevator with the same guy, I'd get a breakfast sandwich from the same person in the cafeteria, I'd shut my door, I'd maybe make small talk at the water cooler for a minute, and then I'd go and shut my door. It's kind of like the, have you seen the Truman Show? Truman Show meets Groundhog Day. Yes, exactly. And again, like that's something that I should have been happy with, because on paper all of that sounded really good, and, and it was good. And... Um, and I think, what, to, to your point, what kind of came back to me was that um, I had this crazy dream. I'd played squash in college. I found squash late in my junior career as a 13-year-old in Santa Barbara, California. <laughs> I found a way. I know. Like, literally one of six kids west of Greenwich, Connecticut, playing squash. Okay, squash is played on a racquetball court? It's played on a squash court, funny enough. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> and it squash is like court a racquetball is court. different than a racquetball it's, court yeah, in it's what like sense? A little bit, it's a little bit shorter. So you can actually but move the same a racquetball. wood, yeah, it's, plaster. It, yeah, with, with lines on it. So there's actually more rules, more complexity than, than racquetball, but it's very similar. So squash is more complicated racquetball with yeah. a ball that doesn't bounce as much? The ball is like a dead rubber, so you have to go to the ball rather than the ball kind of coming back to you. It's almost like very zen. Um, as you are. The one time I played squash, it was like racquetball with a bunch of weird factors you know what I mean? It was like, this is similar, but has all these fascinating differences that make it a totally different game. And you would started playing this at what age? So, like I said, I was born in New York, um, and my f- folks moved a couple times, ended up in Santa Barbara, where there was one set of squash courts within like 100 miles. And it happened to be the club that we joined as a family gym membership. And I know a lot of people think of squash as a kind of a very elitist type of sport, it was the opposite of that. And Santa Barbara is just part of this outdoor club, and they had old converted racquetball courts, and I fell in love at 13. With squash? With playing squash. And there were, like I said, very few people anywhere near my age. So my dad and I would, like, take weekends and go up to San Francisco, but mostly back to New York or Boston, and find the juniors that played and play them and most often get my butt kicked because I I just wasn't that good. (laughs) (laughs) So not only were you into squash, but you weren't that good at probably squash. Batting, yeah, probably batting like 200, you know, eight losses to every two wins I played in juniors. Really? Until the end. Until, and I wouldn't say I even got very good then, but there just aren't that many squash players. And so I studied hard, I worked hard, and I just loved to play. I don't think you do this in Santa Barbara if you just kind of enjoy it, but it's, it's a hobby. For me, I was there every day. I was going to find the, the top com- competition and by the junior, senior year of high school, like I had the grades, I had enough skills. I was probably top 30 in the country for my age group, which was okay, and got the attention of a coach who said, okay, we'll, we'll give him a shot. So now squash re-enters your story. Were you playing squash in your business job at Bain? So as luck would have it, in that kind of one square block life I had in Boston, one of the kind of corners of that block <laughs> was the best squash facility in town. I love it. And it's 50 feet from my office desk. I actually could count foot over foot. I would walk, go down the elevator, and 50 feet, I'd be in the squash club. So it couldn't be closer. And then you take away all the distractions that had you know, come with college, which were good distractions. But all of a sudden, it's like, here are the courts. Here's this routine I'm in. Why not try to like get really good or, or try to just get better or justify getting better? Because, ding, 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 there's a pro squash tour. So you start playing squash in your free time? 
So I had been playing because I played in college. <laughs> I love mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Um, I was the captain of the team when, we, when I graduated. I was not the best player at, at school. Um, I was you know, maybe top four or five on the team. But I think I actually got a lot better because that was my first organized squash experience. And unlike a lot of my peers who had been playing with those types of kids and those types of systems, I hadn't. And so four years in, when everyone was graduating, moving on, the reason I kept going while at Bain was because I felt like there was still gas left in the tank. Gas left in the squash tank. In the squash tank. Not to be like a world champion, but just for me to be the best player I could be, I thought I could actually still be getting better. It felt like I was still kind of going up. Oh, man. Like the Steph Curry of squash. You know what? A lot like of people tell me that. Oh, do they really? <laughs> no. <laughs> no way. So you are doing this job, you're playing squash, and then what happens? So about six or eight months in, I was playing all the time. I was training before work. I would take my lunch break and go play. I'd play after work. I started to take sick days and go play in a tournament kind of on my own and then come back. And then actually talking to folks that Chris knows and some others really had an amazing group of kind of mentors and advisors or just friends um, that I started to kind of like whisper this idea to. And I, in my, to paint the picture, I'm sitting in this small office in, in the 39th floor of this beautiful building with this job that everything was, you know, working. And yet I had this map of the world next to me and I had this quote above my desk that I pasted on. Um, it was from Jeff Bezos when he gave the commence commencement address at Princeton in 2010. And it basically, to paraphrase, it was like, what stories and what choices will you proudly look back on when you're 80 years old? And so when I was 13, I had the idea to go play the pro squash tour because it took you everywhere. You made no money. You were splitting like $1,000, 32 different ways. But it allowed you to go into the homes and communities of people you'd never otherwise meet. And so I was looking at the map of the world. I knew where the <laughs> tour was going. And like six or eight months in, I kind of whispered it to, to someone. I said, you know... I kind of want to go do this. And here's the thing. If I don't, I think I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. So and you had, I think I should quit my job and go on the pro squash tour. Yeah. How many players are on the pro squash tour? Uh, well, there's me. No. <laughs> <laughs> so there are, I think there was like 400. In fact, I know exactly how many. Because in July of 13... And this is where it gets interesting because a lot of people think of these jumps as, like I said, guns blazing. One day you wake up and you go travel right. to Fiji and you come, you know, surfing yeah. buddies with Rob Bell or something. I yeah, don't yeah. Know. Um, in July of 13, I was like, I think I want to do this, but I don't want to do it right now. I want to set the steps to actually go do it. And so I joined the Pro Squash Tour part-time and became the 387th best player in the world yes. while working at Bing Capital. Yeah. 387th yeah. best squash player in the world. Where are the best squash players? Where do they live? So squash is a British sport um, in its origins, and through colonization, they took it everywhere. Oh, the East then, probably. Yep. India? India. Right now, Egypt is massive. It's it's kind of like Egypt. producing four of the top 10 players in each you know kind of division. Four of the top 10 squash players in the world are from Egypt. Including, you know, I think, yeah. Where are the other top? Uh, I guess Egypt, the other, the other um, England is huge. Yep. Um, South Africa's got great players, New Zealand, and then, you know, everywhere, France. Um, the, one of the top players is from Czech Republic. There's a great player from Spain. Um, and the you'll always have a few Indians And the well. tour is global. It's all it over is. the world. So when I was 13 and I looked up the tour, you see this map of the world and these dots lighting up everywhere. And these were literally, they call them satellite tour events. Think of single A minor league baseball, but instead of being in Galveston, Texas, 
you're in the southern tip of South Island, New Zealand, with a family of four, a single dad who's got three kids, and he says, listen, he picks you up at the airport, says, I know you got your tournament tomorrow, that's great, but uh, my little girl's nine years old, she's never met an American, and she's got show and tell tomorrow. Can you go be her show and tell? And you go into the elementary school in Invercargill, New Zealand, because why not? It's like those are the things that I dreamt of. It was not just the squash, but like entering these lives as they were happening. So you do it. You start, you're playing and you're working at Bain. Yep. So and I'm playing from, from, for about a year. I played nights and weekends. I remember having a conference call with, with one of the managing directors who founded the investment firm I was at. And I took the call in like a locker room area, hung up the conference call, and then went upstairs and played like a pro event and got my butt kicked. <laughs> But I'm thinking, like, how cool is this? They're announcing, like, Mike Lewis of the United States of America. And I'm thinking, like, this is, like, a crazy, a crazy dream starting to come true in a really weird way. And I was, like, in Philadelphia. <laughs> it wasn't like I was, like, <laughs> yeah, right, you know, on the, the beach street. somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And so how long can you do, do you do both? So literally about a year. Um, well, about 10 months. So from July 13, I did two things. One is I joined the tour. And... The second thing I did was I actually started using my PowerPoint skills that I got very proficient at, and I started pitching sponsors. And I laughed, but, but my, oh. my, my thought was that if I could get sponsors, in theory, I was pitching them to give me money, to, and in return, I'd give them the space on my very you know, lucrative, highly visible squash jersey. <laughs> but what I was actually doing was I was convincing myself. And this is one of the things I oh. talk about and we can talk about later, but I think by, by writing down my goals, being like, this is what I want to do. This is why I'm doing it. Here's the reasons. And if you can sponsor me, great. You were convincing them, but you were convincing was, yourself. Yeah. And the first person that said, yeah, I'll give you a few hundred bucks. Why not? I was like, well, wait, wait. like. Now you're in. Now I got to do it. Now who, was your first, who was your first sponsor? Um, it was a fellow who, who works in an investment firm in Boston. And he was a member of the squash club. And I sat down with my, my PowerPoint slides and I'm breezing through. I'm like, yeah, you know, and I kind of like get nervous and I don't even want to oh, stop it. got it. And he's like, yeah, sounds great. I'm in. I'm like, I'm what? Had he seen you play? Yeah, these, it was like a small group of folks that, that knew me from going in every day. And I, you know, I had no life. I was there all the time. And he was like, yeah, I think you could be good at this. He thought, yeah, I think you could be good at this. But I think we both knew I, I was doing it for a bigger reason. Right, right, right. He was right. like, this is a story for your grandkids. I literally had a bullet point section of why I'm doing this. And it's like, I would regret not doing it. I want stories to tell my grandkids. Like I had that Bezos quote and I just firmly believed as I started to think more and more that it would be terrible to go and get injured and lose everything and have to come back unemployed, having given up. I knew what I was giving up, but it would not be nearly as terrible as not going and having that window closed and telling everyone how I could have been a pro squash player sometime. So then do you leave Bain? So over the course from July of 13 to May of 14, I was training twice a day. I was playing more. I was pitching sponsors and, um, <laughs> and then working. Uh, and by May of 14, and, and a few months before, I went to the guys at Bain. And this is, again, what I said earlier. This is what makes it really hard. And I don't, I don't want to sound like – in fact, I felt guilty about it because everything was in the right place. Like everything was going the way it should have. And I should have felt great about it. And I knew the risk I was taking and I was okay with that because I wanted to at least try and fail rather than not try. So the hardest conversation was to, to talk to my bosses and the folks that were so smart that had, you know, invested in me. And I'd been there almost three years at this point. 
I said, listen, I love this. I could even see coming back to this stuff, but I have this, this kind of clock that's expiring soon. And you know what was neat is every single partner and every single person at the firm said, you got to go do it. You need to go on the pro squash tour. That's yeah. amazing. What was it like walking out of that meeting? I, you know, I imagine for folks who have like a really big secret or if they're coming out of the closet or things right. that are very personal to them, I don't know how that feels. But for me, that was um, maybe perhaps analogous in the sense that it was this it was this thing that I'd been thinking about and putting into this corner and shutting off and trying to ignore. And all of a sudden to get consensus from people I respected was an amazing feeling. Sounds like it. So a day comes when you get your last paycheck from them. Yeah. And they, they were deactivating my entrance card and I was thinking to myself, Oh, MG. <laughs> yeah. And I had moved my office out. You know, I, I sold basically everything, including my favorite mattress, which I had for a long time. All my possessions were gone. I moved my life into two bags. I had a roller bag that I got in at Marshall's the day before. It was on sale. And I got it. It's 50-pound max. And then a backpack. And I put a tub of stuff in my buddy's family's apartment. And then those two bags, I, I got on a one-way ticket and I left. I flew to New Zealand. So you're, like, so you've got, like, a, your, the few possessions you've cleaned out of your office. And you're, like, walking to the elevator, like, in the movie. And there are, like, some executive assistants and you know, interns. They're like, what's that guy? That's his last day. Why? And he's going to go join the pro squash tour. Yeah. Really? Okay. And, and, and the thing <laughs> I would say is it was as weird as that sounds. And you know, what's crazy, Rob, is that when you do those things, you think the whole world really cares and people are going to be <laughs> yeah, like, right. Oh, like, can you believe Mike no went to way. go to, you know, yeah. but you have to do it for yourself yes. because you know what happened is I had those conversations and people were like, eating their salad or having a smoothie. And they're like, oh, Mike, that's amazing. And you know what? They went back to their salad and they went <laughs> yes. back to their smoothie. I know exactly and what you're talking about. It's huge to you and you share it with someone. They're like, oh, that's interesting. Is there a game on tonight? You know, just, <laughs> exactly. Just exactly. whatever. Totally. What's for lunch? Yeah. And so I think that's one of those the learnings I had, which we can talk about later, but it's like, you've got to have the conviction. You've got to make this plan. And then you've just got to know that it's right for you. And in, I'm not saying what I did is right for everybody or is right for me in five years, but at that point it was right for me. So you take a one-way ticket and you go, you start traveling the world. Yeah. And you are in, you're way, way far from Boston at this point, I assume. Yeah. So I land in New Zealand with one month planned. So I knew I was playing in these three tournaments in New Zealand on the way there, a few days before leaving, I found out, actually, I bumped into a friend who said, oh, you should, really should play in, in uh, French Polynesia if you can. So I Googled, and sure enough, there was a local tournament, and emailed the guy, and he emailed back in broken English and said, why don't you come to French Polynesia? So like three weeks after leaving Bain, I'm on the big island of Papeete, living under a mosquito net with a family of five, playing in a local pro squash tournament. In, or a local adult tournament. It wasn't even an official pro tournament in French Polynesia. And I had 30 days planned after that. And your ranking at this point in the world is what? <laughs> For all those tracking at home. <laughs> um, 387 July 13, and then I think it was right around, um, it's like 291 in June of 14 when I, when I left. So around 300. My goal was to break 250 at some point. So you just keep touring, you just keep playing and you're staying in homes yeah. because that's cheaper Yeah, and you get better stories. Exactly. So that was a big part of it is 
when I was planning this jump, I was like, okay, what happens after day 30? And I didn't really know, but I was so scared of being totally lonely and bored and, and alone. And I thought that if I do this, staying at the Holiday Inn in Sydney doesn't yeah. really make sense. Right, right. It's not, not only from the money part, but just the experience. And because squash tournaments were so kind of humble and close-knit, they'd offer you a host family. And so in the first tournament, not only did I stay with host family, but because squash is such a global sport, they had players from 13 different countries there. And so in those 30 days, I had invitations to play in Brazil a month later, to play in Malaysia, to go to France two weeks later on my way to a tournament in south of France. And so after that first month, I was starting to put in motion people and ideas and places that would actually give me a couch for just about every night of the next year and a half. Just couch surfing the world playing in squash tournaments. Tell me a, a story that was the most like, oh my word, we're not in yeah. Boston anymore. Yeah. So I had been given a local qualifying spot in a small tournament in the south of France. And it's like three hours train from uh, Paris. And then you take a bus an hour and a half inland. And then a guy picks you up in a car and takes you 40 minutes from there. <laughs> and you, you end up at the top of this hill. <laughs> and on the top of this hill, everybody else goes out of the car, all the other players. But you're told to sit in the car. Why? Because you thought in your intelligent logic six months earlier at your office desk that you should email that promoter and say, hey, if you have any friends that want to host a squash player, I'd love to do it. And the promoter writes back in French something to the effect of, sure. And so fast forward back six months, everyone else gets out of the car in the village of Chateau Arnaud. And you continue up the hill, around a corner, and on the side of a mountain overlooking a vineyard in a village of 1,000 or 2,000 people. You get out of the car. You follow this stranger to a home, and you wait at this garden, and out of nowhere, this man shows up finishing his jog around the mountain, and hands the promoter a cucumber for making him wait, he felt bad. He looks at me, he takes his knife and cuts off some lettuce and hands it to me, and it turns out it's a French chef. His extended family was coming over for dinner, and for whatever reason, as a gesture to his friend, the tournament promoter, he'd be hosting me for that week. And so for the rest of the week, I lived on the side of a mountain overlooking this vineyard with this French chef who thought it really fun to try to make American-style breakfasts and invite me to his home parties and birthdays and events. And the very last night, as if the story couldn't get weirder, um, his cousin's visiting from the South Pacific, an island of New Caledonia, uh, French territory, which is like the south of France, but like, as if you're going to Fiji and you get lost, you'd end up in New Caledonia. So she's visiting. It's her birthday dinner. So I'm now like buddies with the whole family. They didn't speak English. I didn't speak French, but we kind of figured it out by then. And this cousin looks to me and kind of asks everyone, what's this guy doing here? <laughs> and when she learned, pieced in my story, she pulls up Google Earth. And with the windows open overlooking kind of the French countryside and the, the valley below and the, the garden and the vineyards, she zooms in like a thousand times. And she zooms in, she zooms in, and finally out of the blue Pacific comes this small island. And on the island, there's this hill. And on the top of that hill, in the middle of truly nowhere, lives her family. And she looks at me and points to me. And three weeks later, I was sitting down for, <laughs> for family crepe night on the island of New Caledonia on the hill called Plum 
with this woman who's a culinary expert and her husband, the world champion skydiver, skydiver of 1990, who once could skydive and land on a dime and had me live with them for a week. So it's, it's, I can already see the movie. (laughs) And how, like that first year, how much did you make prize money? No, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I made, I remember sleeping um, in a basement in one of the tournaments in bunk beds with some of the other guys and then having to ask if I could get my prize money in cash uh, because that was just easier for me to collect the $54 that I was owed. And so I made money, but it maybe maybe wiped out some of my expenses, maybe. And you travel and travel and play. And where does your and you're still going now? So I am now mostly back in the States and I'm actually in, in the Bay Area. And how high did your has your ranking gotten? So um my peak was actually February, which is just yes. a few yeah. Uh, 112. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. The 112th best squash player in the world. You're looking at him. And you've been all over the world. So, yeah. But then, from the story that I heard in the water in Australia, this isn't the end of the story. So, tell me what happens out of that. Absolutely. So, I was on... I think actually backing up, um, you had asked me about where the thought came from to do this. And so as I described, I had a lot of conviction around this, but as much as you plan, you're never going to know for sure when you're supposed to go do something, Right. whatever it is, you know, leaving a job as a bartender or as a lawyer or a social worker or a consultant, whatever it may be. I I thought that I was alone and wanted to be a pro squash player, but I wasn't alone in this very intimate struggle internally. Yes to ask myself the question, well, when do you go do it? Right. So to push myself over that proverbial ledge to go make my jump, I started getting a hold of people who had made similar types of jumps, who had left something comfortable to go do what they really wanted. And I got a hold of one woman through reading her story in our alumni magazine one night. It was January of 13. And I called her up and she had left Wall Street to go be a cyclist. She's actually going to be on the Olympic team this year, which is pretty amazing. She had left in her career to go do it. And I kept asking her, how'd you know when to jump? How'd you know when to jump? And when I hung up, I went into my coworker's office. We were the last ones there that night. And his name is Corey. And I said, Corey, this should be a book or this should be collected in some way because it's not just me thinking about a jump. Uh, I think all of us have something we want to be doing that we're yeah. not doing right now. And What was her name? Huh? What was the woman name, the cyclist? Evie Stevens. And what did she say? What her jump was? Yeah. She wanted to get to a point where she could justify it, not externally, but internally. So she liked to cycle. She picked it up out of college. Um, But she needed to show herself she was on an athletic level, like meets the bar, passes it. So she started doing local events and then regional and then then national. And when she felt like she had gotten to a level that would justify pursuing it, forget making the Olympics, but I think just going to that next level, next level, she could say to herself, this is time well spent. And she actually did make the Olympics. And then she made the Olympics <laughs> in 2012, and I think for this year as well. So I've, you I've had t- this sense, there's somebody needs to, to gather the wisdom of how to know when to jump. Absolutely. Someone needs to, to almost like a guide. Yeah, curate maybe, or collect. Yeah. And the thing is, is I'm not an expert on this. Everyone's got their own life story. But I think that we all have something we're thinking about. 
And Corey was really encouraging of me to do it. And I sketched out a book cover that night in January 13. I emailed it to a friend and it was my manifesto. I still have the email. And it was like, these stories should be put together. And then you know what's interesting? Is over the next year and a half while on this adventure, I'd be in small town Brazil or in the mountains of New Zealand or wherever. And I'd be sitting around the dinner table or I'd pull up a stool at a bar. And no matter who I was with, people would say to me, yeah, it's an interesting story. And, you know, I've always wanted to be a blank. Oh, interesting. And so um, I don't know if the project was really going to go anywhere until sometime around August of 14. I was on the tour for a few months. And then um, tragically, my friend and coworker that had encouraged me to push it forward passed away in an accident. And in reflecting on that, you know, as, as everyone was, you know, I was not, we weren't best friends, but he was someone I aspired to be like. He lived life to the fullest. And I, I sent a message to his brother and sister who I, I knew. I said, listen, I don't know where this project's going to go, but I want to at least push it forward. And so from that moment on, I just started collecting more stories. I had one story done in 17 months of having the idea. And then the next 12 months, I got like another dozen stories. Came back to the States a year later in August of 15. And, and just started to think, what can I do with this? I didn't know if it was kind of a digital presence or a book. Yeah. But I was just throwing everything to the wall. And then some of it started to stick in funny ways. Wow. And so is the book, where's the book now? It's ready. So it's on the way. We have it's a book, pro- written. book proposal. Oh, okay. Um, as I came back, I was introduced to a wonderful kind of folks in the literary world. Yep. And I'm now working with a nonfiction to capture agent. all these stories. To capture the stories, we've, we're putting out actually the proposal to publishers starting now. Um, on the digital front, we have kind of what I call this hub and spoke network, which is whentojump.com is the hub. But then we tell you the story there. You can submit your story there. And now we're getting submissions from Russia and Spain and New York City, like all these different types of jumps coming in. But then we use these spokes from Instagram. You know, we'll have a channel there to show the stories by photo yeah. or on medium by yeah, text. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're getting interest to actually tell these stories in <laughs> digital ways. Because it's interesting when I travel and speak and one of the number one questions people ask is how do you know when to stay where you are doing what you're doing and how do you know when to start the next thing? How do you know when to leap? How do you know when to go after that thing? Um, it's, it's so many people, that's the question. And there's always, obviously, paychecks, health insurance, mortgage, rent, sure. et cetera. And then if you throw in kids. But um, it's so interesting to me that, that so many people are asking this exact question. And you are essentially have set out to like curate. I'm going to at least get many stories as possible and look for themes or patterns or truths that can help others. Yeah, and, and I don't, again, feel like um, I have, you know, it's not my job to tell everyone how to live their life. I right. just want to put these stories out. And right. you know what I was able to do? I got feedback early on was make a, see if there's any, you know, thread you can tie between these stories. Yeah. So I actually was able to put a framework together. I call it the jump curve. Oh, nice. And it's really nice because it's not a blueprint. It's not a self-help. This is how you change your life. But it's saying, hey, these are a lot of disparate stories. But here's some common points. Common points. Yeah, I can tell you about it if you want. Let's go. Give me the... So, yeah, the key points is, you know, the first at the very fundamental sitting at your desk, listen to the little voice in your head. Mm -hmm. And so I'll give you a quick example of that. 
this guy who grew up middle-class Jewish family in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, always wanted to be a screenwriter, fails as a screenwriter, goes in and starts running karate studios in rural Virginia. He has this little voice that won't go away. Won't go away, won't go away. And he said to me, you know, if the little voice is always so right, then why is it so small? It shouldn't be so little. <laughs> so he listens to it, and he goes and he writes a movie, it fails. He writes another movie, it's Sleepless in Seattle. That's a good story. That same dot of listening to the little voice is described in a very different way by a woman who left the uh, inner city of Chicago to get an education. She was a dropout at 15. She talks about a little voice in her head. So very different stories threaded around this common point. Yeah. Number two is make a plan, which sounds like very broad, but there's actually this, I think, misnomer around making a jump that we've talked about, which is you wake up one day and you go do it. Almost every uh. single person I talk to, except for maybe one, every single person told me, I don't know if this is crazy to say this, but my jump was a lot of little steps. Yeah. And that's the unsexy thing that I think people want to gloss over. Yeah. But I mean, in my example, it was like pitching sponsors and training at five in the morning. For other people, it was just saving up in different ways and whatnot. And then the next point, which is kind of the jumping piece, is what, and I got to interview the author, Michael Lewis. Uh, oh, my the, word. The famous Flash one. boys, yeah, yeah. big short. Yeah. And he said something great, which was, you know, let yourself be lucky. And I think that's the key, is that you can only plan so far. You can only hypothesize and analyze. And to your point, you're only going to get certainty to some degree. At some point, you have to just put the pieces together that will let you collide with right. great things. Right. And then you jump. And from my experience, the unknown that I couldn't plan and almost prevented me from leaving was what delivered the best experience. And so you just got to set the pieces right and then jump. Oh, man, I can relate. That's... that's What's happened to me, man? And, and then the, and then the oh, last yeah. part is once you jump kind of off in the distance, don't look back. So a lot of people might listen to this and be like, well, easy for you to say you have this cool story. You might be a struggling author now. Like, you know, like all of these great things are happening. But the biggest cheerleaders for me who encouraged me to make my jump were the people whose jumps failed, who on paper, everything went wrong. Oh, for. I love it. So like, boom, shakalaka. If you're like, oh easy for you to say, but what if it didn't work? Well, like, I don't even know if it worked for me. What does work mean, right? Yes. What works just meant that I did it. Like, there were days that sucked, but I knew what I was getting into. And so that's what I would say to people is like, don't look back once you do it and you're not going to regret it. Oh, so good. It's, um, I totally relate to people like, yeah, but it was successful. I was like, no, no, mm -mm. wrong, wrong way to think about it. Like you did it. That was the success. <laughs> Exactly. Because it was a mess. So many things I've done were a complete mess. Yep. But I was doing them. Yeah. And that was the point in the first place. I'm Try sure. It and see what happens. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Mike Lewis is the 112th <laughs> best squash player in the world. And going probably the other way soon, but, you know, at least I can tell the grandkids. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I this love is it. Is it whentojump.com? Whentojump.com. And we have a newsletter that we'll be putting out soon, which will be every few weeks, kind of our favorite stories mm -hmm. in a really quick email. So you can get an inspiration in your inbox in a sense yeah. where you get, here's our favorite photo, text, and video from around our platform. Yeah. So go check it out, when to jump on Facebook, all that. But thank you for having me, Rob. I'm, a, I'm an avid listener and, and a big fan. And Oh, it's so good. I'm in the water and Chris is like, you know, this is, he left Bain <laughs> to try and make it on the pro squash tournament i was like really yeah he's like there's like 400 players and he started at like 300 and something i was like how high do you get and he's like i think he got in the hundreds 
<laughs> yeah. So good. I appreciate it. My pleasure.